Welcome to the On the Blue Couch podcast. I'm Kathleen, psychotherapist and host, providing you with information, reflections, and interviews on anything and everything related to therapy. This is episode 27, Healthy and Unhealthy Coping, a conversation with Dwight Hurst. Hi all and welcome to this 27th episode. Uh, Today I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with Dwight Hurst, a fellow psychotherapist, and he's also the creator and host of his own podcast, The Broken Brain, which I highly recommend you check out. So today we're going to be talking about healthy and unhealthy coping. When I think about coping, I think about it in terms of simply people Uh, dealing with life the best way that they know how. So what are the things that help people walk through life and be able to encounter it? So while coping itself is simple in definition, it actually can get quite complex with the reasons that uh, people cope in the way that they do, kind of the origins of that, um, and the process of moving from the unhealthy into the more healthy coping skills and uh, ways in which people cope so that there is the possibility and that there is hope for no matter where anyone is of finding new ways to engage life. And so that is part of our discussion today and I hope you enjoy. Here you go. Hello, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Fourth of July weekend coming up. I know. I'm uh, actually full up. It's like a full up Friday other than uh, what we're doing right now. Yeah. So I'm, I like the topic that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. It can go so many different places. I know. (laughs) I, uh, so, so this is something that's come up for me lately. Maybe we'll kick it off with this. Uh, I've run into a lot of times where I am realizing more and more, the more that I practice you can see how people's unhealthy uh, coping skills, they all have a lot in common from our perspective as therapists, right? So it, for, for example, if someone is coping with their emotions by being, you know, kind of rageaholic kind of a person where a lot of anger and irritability and lashing out at the world, mm-hmm. um, that dynamic is actually very similar to someone who might be using cocaine. Uh, as far as the psychological dynamic, that they're doing the same thing, they're distracting themselves from their problems. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if they're doing a line of cocaine or if they're picking fights, uh, the dynamic is very similar. Mm-hmm. But, How do you see it similarly? Yeah. Well, so so for me, the similarity is is there's kind of a build up and a release. That there's some kind of like I'm going through something, and, and sometimes there's also a hesitancy to understand or a lack of understanding that I am going through something. I'm just angry. I'm just getting high. Like that's, that's kind of the presenting thought. There might be some knowledge that I'm stressed out, but there isn't like a feeling of, Oh, this is what I'm doing because I'm insecure. Mm-hmm. Or this is what I'm doing because I'm in a bad relationship. Or this is what I'm doing. Cause I'm worried about my adult child. Who's, you know, getting into trouble or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But as those stresses go up, then the coping goes up as well like the unhealthy kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But yet there's a very different reaction from, from society and loved one 
from those two people that I just described. Now, the anger person, people whom we're going to get annoyed with, like it might, it might even damage a relationship or it might even damage a job if it's too bad, if they're too angry. Mm-hmm. But as soon as everybody finds out that they're snorting cocaine, everybody's going to be like, oh, that's huge. You could go to jail. You could lose like your driver's license. You could lose your house. You could lose, mm-hmm. oh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of money that goes into that too. And so mm-hmm. I, w- I would say, I think from outside the therapy session, people look at it as very, very different. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're saying like the stuff that drives it is very similar. The expression of it looks very differently in the way society perceives that expression. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Now, I often use this example because I've worked with a lot of people with addiction. Um, uh-huh. but, but I've known people over the years who run a lot of like marathons or do like triathlons and things like that. And I've known more than one person personally, as, as well as clients, but just who have told me that they have to restrain themselves because they get so into that, that marathon lifestyle that they say, I only allow myself to do two events a year because otherwise I'm training all year long and I never spend Saturdays with my kids. And, you know, and they just kind of talk about that. And a person who's like, so if a person says that, I have to be careful. I don't overtrain in marathons and all this and all that. Uh, you say, wow, good for you. What a cool person. It gets so, rewarded, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It looks it looks really cool and healthy mm-hmm. um, if they run. It, and let's let's say that they to, that they don't have that self awareness and they run six marathons a year. Then people are going to say, "Wow, that person's awesome. I want to be like them. I wish I, I was them. I wish I was whatever with them. Knew them better. Wish I was more like them." Uh, whereas the person who's like, "Yeah, you know, some of them get so stressed out. I drink myself to sleep every night and <laughs> get a DUI." <laughs> you know. Uh, you don't go, wow, good for you. Right. <laughs> so have you ever seen the, like, the 10 marathons in 10 days or something like that? I don't know if you've ever seen that in the news where um, it's some sort of extreme like challenge where I'm going to do this number of races within this number of days. And it's kind of reminding me of what you're talking about. Uh, like ultra runners as well that do like around here they have like a, there's a hundred mile race. I don't know if it's a race or if it's just mm-hmm. a race to not die um but where they'll run for a, a hundred miles i think there's some walking and some recovery and like like I, I know somebody who's done that a couple times and and i certainly wouldn't try to say that uh that that person's unhealthy because they did that in fact it could be very healthy that they did that um so yeah yeah it, 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 it all depends why you're doing it i guess so like the situation and getting more information that yeah Similar race doesn't mean the same thing for the same people or for, for different people. I had a coworker once who was uh, in recovery. He'd been, in, he'd been sober for 20 years and we just started talking about it one day and uh-huh. for some reason, because he knew what I did for a living probably. And he, he, it was where I worked in a, in a large facility and not everybody there was a counselor. And he just kind of was talking to me about what I did. And he said, you know, I went to AA. I've been sober for 20 years. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he shared this little thing I've always thought about ever since then, is he said, uh, I, could tell, I could tell if, if friends and family have an alcohol problem, uh, because I could tell, I, I look back on what I've been through and all this, and he said, uh, it wasn't so much how much I drank, and it's not so much how much they drink, it's uh, what happens when you can't. When you're planning on doing it and you can't, how big of a deal is it? How much does that shatter your world? How much do you then lash out at people? 
you know, I was going to drink and I can't get a hold of it. Am I going to, you know, obviously in extreme cases, you get physically sick if you're the dependent. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's like, I can't drink and so I'm going to make everybody else's weekend miserable. And, and, and you could probably apply that to like marathons and stuff too, right? Because you could say, yeah, if you're going to run that thing, but what happens if uh, you have an injury and you can't or, or there's a health need in the family and you just can't do it this year? Is it going to be like, oh, my life sucks now? Or is it like, oh, that kind of sucks that I didn't get to do that thing. There's a difference. It's interesting you brought up addiction. I just saw some recent episodes of Intervention. I, and I, I don't know, did you ever watch that show? I have. I've watched episodes. it before. Yeah. And I don't know if you picked up on or what was coming up for me, and I wanted to know your thoughts about this, that there is this very much kind of... Um, you kind of know what to expect in a way in the episode. Like it starts off with the person in, you know, the throes of their addiction, showing what their behaviors look like. And then it goes to the backstory and, you know, the pictures of them growing up. And then there's either stuff going on with, within the family, you know, what we sometimes call attachment trauma or, or there's this and, or there's this shift into like something really bad happened. And then that was the thing that, like accelerated what was already kind of started and yeah. I don't know if that's kind of what you see in your own work um do you have any thoughts about that yeah I think there's a lot of triggers like that that, that do pop up um it, it was interesting as you're saying that like I'm thinking about the triggers that happen and then I'm thinking about what makes something an unhealthy coping skill right mm -hmm. because both the examples we used already like running marathons I mean, you wouldn't start out by thinking if someone says, I run, I ran a marathon, you would say, oh, you're tremendously unhealthy. You know, you'd say, that's probably a good, in fact, running and, and jogging is something I've used as stress relief before too. Um, and then again, on the other hand, having, having a, a, a cocktail or a nightcap here or there or whatever, you know, there's even uh, some of the, the DBT manuals that tell you do something healthy to distract yourself from stress. Some of them will say, have a drink. You know, not a good idea if you're an alcoholic, but but you can certainly point to it in the manual and say, hey, it said here I had to. No, but, you know, on that list of healthy coping skills, they have like, you know, have, try a different brand of beer or whatever. You know, they have these things that they'll throw on there as like little nice things to do. And so what makes them unhealthy? Well, I think you hit on it there, right? There's a, it starts to become something you do to survive instead of something that is just a little part of your life. Um, there's that compulsion, and, and I think a lot of times it is due to some kind of trigger, uh, and it's, we usually tend to latch onto whatever makes us feel good a little more frequently and a little more intensely when we're in a period of trauma, right? Mm-hmm. To get through it. Yeah. And the after of it, to get through the after of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I, I remember... Uh, hearing that in a trauma debriefing training, it was one of these where the guy who, who goes in after like a workplace shooting or whatever. And he had said that uh, is just a good general tip to give everybody if they've been through something traumatic is, well, whatever you do, if you eat your feelings, if you drink your feelings, if you isolate, you're probably going to want to do that. You're, you're probably going to find that you tend to do that a little more frequently and a little more intensely in the aftermath of a thing. And so you better be just a little careful about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's a good thing to monitor. I don't know. And, and to a certain extent, it's, it's uh, psychologically normal. It's typical. 
Like we all do it somewhat. And then yes. talking about times maybe where it becomes more dramatic than is typical. Mm-hmm. But that it may have started off in a place and often does where it was, you know, kind of more of the healthy, more balanced, I guess we'd call it. And then the acceleration of it, part of um, socializing and that sort of thing. And then for some, it becomes a major problem. And for some, it just is something that they can continue to socially drink. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you see that. And and sometimes it's already a problem before a trauma happens and it becomes more of a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes it becomes its own problem. It's, it's an interesting thing because I think... The reason I like to call it unhealthy coping skills, uh, you could call it maladaptive coping skills if you want to be, you know, I, I find if I use the word maladaptive, people are a little more happy. They're paying me, you know, they, they pay higher for those extra therapy words. Uh, <laughs> you can charge a few bucks more a session. Oh. That's not really true, but uh, I should try to sell that to insurance. But I said maladaptive. I want three more dollars. Uh-huh. Uh, right now. <laughs> exactly. I, li- I like to look at it that way because I think... Uh, Something that, that is not shocking to therapists is this idea that, uh, you know, an, an unhealthy or maladaptive coping skill is not really a problem. It's a solution, right? And it's, it's the, the problem is, is that that's how you can tell if it's unhealthy is if the solution becomes its own problem. Because a lot of times people aren't talking to the person uh, who's unhealthy about the underlying problem. That's, that's kind of what, where we come in as therapists. We try to get to the underlying problem. People are usually saying, like, hey, stop drinking so much. Hey, you're never around. Why are you always gone with your friends? Why are you always gone doing marathons? Why are you always hiding in the basement? Why are you always podcasting? Whatever it is. <laughs> Whatever it is that we do. Podcasting addiction. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, we're going to have a podcast episode on that in the future. It's like a plan. We're going to can have all sorts of podcasters on. They'll have to rearrange their schedule to be on it, though. But, uh, you know, their, their loved ones will have to suck it up and get over it. Um, <laughs> so you get that where it's like, stop doing this this problem. I'm doing air quotes. This problem. But it's really, the problem is with that is that people are saying, stop doing your solution. Stop doing the thing that gives you comfort. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, well, and then that, that doesn't really solve the underlying problem, whatever it is. There was a trauma, a trigger something I'm worried about that I'm not dealing with well, and now I lost my my way of coping. You know, you had mentioned DBT earlier, um, and I know not everybody out there knows what it is. Do you want to describe that a little bit and some of the other maybe, you know, skills training and, you know, any any tools that um, you find that you're using in your practice or you know that other therapists are? You know, DBT has been around for a while now. Uh, but it's funny to me how, how people don't know a lot about it sometimes. It's, uh, it stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Um, and I, I always go with the definition of dialectical that I have heard in trainings for DBT. So I'm waiting for one day when someone's like, that's not what that means. But my understanding is that dialectical is a, philosoph- a philosophical term, I say. Uh, it's where you can balance out basically contradictory ideas and have them both coexist. Uh, it, it's it's being able to say, let me take turmoil and uh, conflict and be able to just let it be there and, and try to be healthy with it. And then you integrate that with uh, behavioral therapy. And I always like to point out that uh, if you notice DBT, it, it certainly sounds a lot like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the earliest forms of therapy. And so 
from a marketing perspective. It's, it's not at all, you know, Marshall Linehan, who admitted it, is not a dummy when it comes to when we come out with something that sounds a lot like this thing that's been really established. And I admire that personally. But it, it's, it's really focuses around this idea of taking overwhelming overreaction, emotional overreaction from people who are very sensitive, maybe very self-destructive. Mm-hmm. And then going in and implementing skills to try to interrupt that unhealthy pattern mm-hmm. so that instead of drinking myself to sleep every night, instead of uh, breaking up my relationship and finding a new relationship really quick or whatever mm-hmm. it is that I'm doing, I try to actually evaluate my choices and I try to appreciate the emotional uh, uh, response that I'm going through before I try to medicate it. Mm-hmm. At least that's, that's my little nutshell of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, what do you think about the mindfulness aspect of it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big piece. You know, mindfulness is, is really taken off in therapy. And I find that a lot of people, whether they've been in therapy before or not, uh, when they come to see me, they've heard, at least heard the term mindfulness. There's, there's a lot written about it. It's, it's often talked about. It's this idea of really living in the moment uh, in a healthy way, of trying not to become overly overwhelmed or obsessed um, with worries about the past and the future and trying to focus on what do I need to do right now. And sometimes unhealthy coping skills, they really do come from that place of I need to make myself feel better uh, than I do because of this thing that happened or I need to avoid this other thing that's going to happen. Um, or, or, or whatever it is, there's a past and a future element to where being able to just take a deep breath and say, what's going on in my life at this moment? Uh, and, and realize it's, it's, it may not be all that horrible right now. You know, I mean, chances are you, you can apply that even to those, anybody who might be listening to this right now, chances are that there's nothing horrible happening to them right now. And I, I feel like I can say that because they're taking the time to listen to a therapeutic podcast. So on the one hand, even if whoever out, you are out there listening through your, your earbuds or your headphones or in your car or whatever, you might be going through some major strife and turmoil in your life. But in this literal moment, this actual moment, you're probably driving, walking, exercising, doing yard work. These are all the things I do when I'm listening to podcasts uh, and, and listening to two intelligent, charming people uh, right now. You're, you're having a moment right now that's okay most likely. And that's the idea of mindfulness is being able to embrace those hundreds of moments throughout the day that are okay to try to off balance the feelings and the reactions that you have. At least that's, that's how I try to implement it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going into such an observation place and kind of embracing moment to moment life experience when you're really there. Yeah. Yeah. I've been talking to people a lot about this in, in session lately, actually. Um, and I guess I'm assuming you, you probably use it a lot when, when you're working with people. Yeah, I remember when I first discovered it, and I would say it was life-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I discovered it, well, it was brought to me at my nonprofit that I was working at. They implemented DBT, and it was so cool. I'm like, what? You can, you can also embrace your anger? Like, you can really <laughs> kind of look at it and be curious about it? So there's all this curiosity talk that I really wasn't used to. And I loved implementing it this place because I, we all, all of us talked about how 
we all use it now in our own lives in some way, but it develops over time and you get to examine it differently and go deeper with it. I think. Oh, I think it's, it, it's interesting because it sounds so simple in its face, you know, um, mindfulness, live in the moment, got it. And a lot of people kind of look at it that way, like, yeah, I got it. But <laughs> if you actually look at applying it, uh, and there's been tons out there that's written books, articles, you can find all sorts of things. Uh, for example, I, I had been using it in practice for some time before I ever came across the idea of mindful uh, eating. And, and that's actually something that they use when it comes to nutritionists helping people to eat purposefully instead of just eat absentmindedly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like if you're going to have anything, if you're going to ingest anything, the, the rule of mindful eating would be that you sit down, that you look at it, that you pay attention to the, the emotional feelings as well as the, uh, the sensory experiences of the smells and the tastes. And, and, and people who do this, you know, I've, I've, I've only messed around a little bit with it, but people who do it a lot, they say they eat a lot, uh, they eat less for one thing, because it takes longer <laughs> to do it. Uh-huh. And, and, but they, they also appreciate what they're eating more. A lot of times they get more of an enjoyment experience out of it, um, mm-hmm. by, by really living in the moment and eating what they're eating. Um, and so sometimes it can help with, with dietary changes or with other things and you can reflect on, Oh, I'm tasting this and this is why. And if there's an absence of something I had to remove from my diet, then I appreciate that lack and that desire, but I also appreciate that I'm being healthy. There's a lot that happens in the moment if you really attend to it. Uh Uh-huh. And I think sometimes people resist that idea because they're like, it just sounds kind of hippy-dippy, whatever, just live in the moment. Okay, man, whatever, YOLO. And... (laughs) And it's more, it's more a purposefully engaging with this sensory experience of, of what that moment is. Mm-hmm. Well, I even think about like watching your favorite movie or even a series. I don't know if you've ever run and it gets into like the binge watching that mm-hmm. we is part of what we can talk about. Um, but mindful viewing of a favorite TV show, you know, mindful watching, like what would that be like? Because I don't know if you have, but I've definitely watched a couple episodes of something I really like in a row. And then I'm like, wait, I need to go back. I don't know what just happened. Yeah. And that's where it becomes the days. No, and you know what? It, it's it's. Uh, I know this is not our our primary purpose today, but we have this whole kind of like addiction to distraction that a lot of people talk about, and it, uh-huh. um, I, and I've noticed that that if I'm sitting absentmindedly and I'm I'm watching TV, like just like you said, something I'm actually really interested in, and then I'll find myself flipping over to Facebook and I'll be like, wait a minute, I missed out on what happened in the plot, and I really wanted to know what happened. What you know? Yeah, and I didn't didn't really engage with even this thing that I was doing to be a distraction, <laughs> I had to distract myself from that. Uh-huh. And, and so it's, it, it's crazy how we don't engage very mindfully very often in things, not fully. You mm-hmm. know? And there's a lot of experiences to be had with trying to, to engage with it mindfully. I, I don't know about you, but I find that uh, sometimes people, people have a concern with mindfulness where they're like, well, but I have to plan for the future. I have to think about you know, how do my choices impact the future and all these things. And I, I actually, I try to help people uh, find a compromise there. Cause that's once again, that's the whole DBT thing, right? Is yeah. compromise between conflicting ideas. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I'll tell them like, I'm, I'm you know, it, there's nothing in mindfulness, in my opinion, there's nothing in mindfulness that says you can't plan for the future or think about the future. But if you're going to do it, you should do it mindfully. 
So if I'm, you know, I don't know, mowing the lawn and I'm freaking out or I'm watching a TV show or I'm talking to someone or I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing, and in my head I'm freaking out about this problem that's future-based and i got to figure out what I'm going to do, i got to figure out what I'm going to do, the mindful approach to that would be, is that what I want to do right now? Do I want to think about that thing? Because I could actually sit down, I could think about that thing, I could make a plan, I could, you know, engage with it somehow. That would be a mindful future-based thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm still living in the present, but in the present, what I'm doing is planning for the future. Or, and I, say, I don't really want to do that right now. I can't do that. I already did that earlier. I did that yesterday. I've, I've, I've done that to the point where I'm driving myself crazy. I'm really just having, being anxious about it. Then the mindful thing to do is, well, let me put my energy and attention as much as possible towards this other thing that I'm doing then and try to put the other on the back burner. Um, if, the, if the, that kind of makes sense, you can't make it go away magically, but you can focus your energies on, wait, if I'm having this conversation with this person, let me do that now. Um, or if I'm, whatever I'm doing, let me put my energies into that. And, and uh, so you're not really sacrificing your ability to live in a way that's going to be healthy for your future if you're mindful, if you're truly mindful. Yeah. So it almost, um, I think about it like, not canceling out, moving out of pl- moving out of a place of fear, because there's nothing about mindfulness that says let's reckless with our lives. Because, you know, we have to we have to financially plan. We have to plan what we're gonna do. Um, sometimes the next day or what or the next mm-hmm. year even. Not that, but we can't be. I guess part of mindfulness is not is being able to let go when that doesn't happen. So there's so much at play here. I guess as I'm hearing you um, talk. And in fact, the mindfulness aspect helps us to plan better. So, you know, that's part of it. We actually want to actually train our brains in a way uh, to allow us to plan better without so much rumination. Yeah, I think think really that's where mindfulness, you could say, would be kind of at the core of most healthy coping skills, too. Think about it. Uh, I actually had a client who used to talk about uh, what what they called the, like, a three-week rule. They'd say... If, if I do a thing, is it something that the me three weeks from now would appreciate that I did? And I believe that was actually a mindful exercise, even though it's a little future-based. It was kind of like, let me be purposeful about what I'm doing right now. If I, you know, and, and it makes a lot of sense because if I, do I want to go for a jog? Well, I don't want to, but the, the guy three weeks from now might be glad that I did that. <laughs> it's like... And, uh-huh. and so if I'm like, I'm doing a favor for myself in the future... And then I can focus on it as that, and it helps to repurpose it in a little bit, a little bit of a way. Uh huh. Well, and it goes back to the observation, observing the future self in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, and it's interesting as you're saying that too. I think a lot of the unhealthy coping skills they really have a lot to do with a very instant gratification, right? Where um, the mm-hmm. the less healthy it is, the more instantly gratifying it is. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. It, uh, in the moment, at least at first, although, you know, with, with sort of substance use with that, they'll get a diminishing return. And then all of a sudden that's dependence, you know, where you need it to, to function. It's not helping you anymore. Um, mm-hmm. but, but a lot of unhealthy things have that. Whereas healthy things, you almost have to trick yourself into being gratified. Like you can be, and if you can be mindful, if you can be meditative, if you can be happy about the, the change that you're making, that's healthy then sometimes that can trick your brain into saying like, oh, I, I got something out of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I appreciate what I will get out of it. Mm-hmm. 
I was just thinking, and I wanted, I wanted to know your thoughts about this, is this idea of when someone's, for example, coming out of an addiction and, you know, it's been used for survival. And there's this, this space of becoming more mindful, which means coming into touch with feelings and dropping into that more. Like moving forward, that can be one of the reasons that people have addictions is not to have to deal with it. And then they're dropping in more to their internal experience. Um, I really don't know exactly what my question is, but what do you tell clients about that? Um, what are your recommendations for being able to be in that particular space of transition? I, yeah, I think it kind of ties in with uh, something you said earlier with embracing emotions. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that idea that you're going to become emotional, uh, particularly it, it's like removing a security blanket. If you if you stop doing anything that's unhealthy, you know, you're taking away your comfort. Uh, mm-hmm. This thing's been comforting me. Maybe it's unhealthy. Maybe it became its own problem, but it is still something that comforts me. Um, to a certain extent, even having something bigger to worry about than the thing that's the root problem is a comfort of sorts, because then I don't have to address the problem that really intimidates me and makes me emotional. Mm-hmm. So anticipating that kind of roller coaster of here come your emotions, they're on their way, here, you know, and I've had several people who've told me, this is not, a, this is not a universal experience, but many people have told me, oh, when I stopped drinking or when I stopped getting high, um, all of a sudden I'm getting really emotional. Like I'm watching a commercial and they're for Disneyland and there's these kids going to Disneyland with their parents and I'm like, oh, and I start to cry and it's like. And I'm actually just mentioning a commercial that makes me cry whenever I see it. But, <laughs> so the one with the, yeah. they play that One Republic song of this is a good life, you know, and they have the kids in Disneyland and I'm like, oh, I want to take my kids to Disneyland. And I remember all these memories of family. So, you know, but that's, that's actually okay because what, what we learn by trying to cope, a lot of times our coping becomes trying to avoid discomfort. And, and embracing emotions are actually a lot more about embracing the feeling I'm having and saying I might be uncomfortable, but it's healthy. It's okay. And at the end of that, the three-week me would be probably pretty happy uh, because, you know, if I go through those little emotional roller coasters, we go through the downtime or rather the, I guess, the less pleasant time, mm-hmm. uh, we usually get something out of it, you know, to where we'll, we'll cry and then we'll feel... Like something's done, something's happened. It's okay, you know. Like the release you were talking about earlier, yeah. In a way, but in a different way, where the future self is unhealthier. Mm-hmm. There aren't severe consequences. It's just being in that emotional moment. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, like, you, uh, well, I think you said right, embrace anger. You know, mm-hmm. I've I have found that uh, as a, this is where kind of the DBT and the mindfulness approach has been uh, has influenced even the way I do therapy because I'll talk to people about the healthy application of that emotion. So if someone's really, really angry, uh, a lot of times we were taught to just think that's bad or that's the end, you know, the end justifies me. I just, I am angry and that's it, that's all. And I failed somehow or I lashed out or whatever happened. And, uh, but actually to lean into that and say, you know, sometimes I notice that uh, if we assume that emotion has a purpose and that it's going to help us with something, the energy that comes from being angry, usually we can find an application for that that could be appropriate. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, everybody I know who's, who's come out of a violent relationship, I would say, you know, 
basically everybody I've worked with who's left a violent relationship, uh, controlling, manipulative, predatory relationship, uh, they had to get angry first. They had to get either angry on behalf of their children or on behalf of the way they were being treated. They had to, and that sometimes gave them the extra push to leave, to run, to go to family that they were estranged from. Whatever it was they had to do to get out, they had to do it now because I can't do this anymore. So there's a, des a desperation and anger. Those emotions can propel action sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's almost like getting back in your body and you have to get back in it before you can move forward in a way. Because mm -hmm. there's a stuckness to it, just as I'm hearing you talk. Um, I had a question and it went away. <laughs> oh, it was something about roller coasters. Oh, I know what it was. You know, as I've been hearing you talk, I wanted... As I'm hearing the way in which you kind of talk to your clients, what's coming up for me is that that word or words of non-judgment. You know, I I hear you taking, um, and we know this is part of DBT, like the non-judgmental stance. But I think it's such an important aspect of it because as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, yeah, that's so doable, Dwight. That yeah, you make it sound like this is possible, and um, you know, from the start of yeah, this is why this addiction is going on. This makes complete sense, and. Here we go. And yeah. so, you know, I'm thinking about a roller coaster if you're to show up to it and be like, oh, my gosh, this thing is going to be so scary. And there's this big to do about it versus, oh, we're going to go get on a roller coaster. And it's probably going to be scary at times. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak more about the non-judgmental piece connected to the observation? Because I'm just hearing that. Yeah. Work. I think it, I think that's a big thing. That's one of my favorite aspects of DBT is the this idea where where. They use it as a skill to try to train yourself to be less judgmental of yourself or of situations or of other things where you're not judging and setting yourself up for bad experiences, uh, not judging yourself too harshly, not falling into kind of like that perfectionistic expectation, or also trying to break a pattern of uh, we have so many assumptive judgments that we get programmed to have. This happened. That means I'm going to drink. This happens. That means that you're going to hate me. You're, I'm going to do this, you're going to catch me, okay, whatever. You know, whatever it is, I'm being a little vague and a little specific at the same time with different, different coping skills, I guess. Um, and trying to break that down and say, well, it doesn't have to mean that. You know, you don't have to have that, that, that expectation is fueling itself to a certain extent. But I, I also like the, the kind of, I like to apply that also back to the therapist, too. And I think one of the things that's really helped me is to approach people with that non-judgmental stance as well. Because when I, 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 a big important part of how I work is when I look at it and I say, oh, you're just self-medicating with this thing that you're doing. That's just an unhealthy coping skill. Getting mad at your spouse is the same thing as snorting cocaine, is the same thing as you know medicating with, uh, with unhealthy relationships. Or Now, not to say that the collateral damage is the same for everyone else, but as the therapist, I feel like I can give you that, that lack of judgment in a, mm -hmm. in a moral sense to say, oh, you're bad for doing that. It's like you're, you're a whole other creature from another planet. And no, no, it's just you're a person, and this is a dynamic we all go through to some extent. Yours has gotten healthy, and so you have some consequences. And, and mm -hmm. we can work on it in therapy from that perspective. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of feel like that's one of the reasons why therapists get accused of excusing behaviors because you see celebrities will go on the news and say oh yeah i was caught doing that horrible thing i'm going to therapy now or i'm going to to rehab and people roll their eyes and say oh they're just going to tell them it's okay because they had a bad childhood or something mm -hmm. um 
And I think if you're in the therapy room, most of us, I mean, good therapists aren't, we're not telling people, oh, it's okay to do that. We're trying to find the context. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and to say, if we can understand it, then we can actually diminish it. It doesn't, it doesn't need to happen anymore if we know why it's happening. Yeah. Well, and also that, you know, even going to rehab is, it becomes usually for most people, um, it's not so public. And so it's playing out very publicly. Mm-hmm. And of course, for those, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about the reality therapy shows. Um, but <laughs> there can be some misconceptions, I believe, <laughs> um, that come out of that. Um, and so it's, it, it is hard to know what goes on between the therapist and client, but that it's going to shut everything down if it's like you're this judging, harsh person, because oftentimes, most of the time, they've had those harsh judging people and they have the inner critic already. Yeah. So we don't need to engage that, those parts um, to move forward. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important part for me is I think I have to view it as everybody's a human being. You know, yeah. everybody, everybody was a little boy, a little girl, whatever, you know, and, and, and we all went through stuff and uh, we picked up stuff baggage along the way. And, and so to look at that, um, it, and, and I find it, it's also important. It, it's this weird balance for therapists. I think we have to have on the one hand to be non-judgmental to the client. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, to be really, uh, I guess, appreciative of that collateral damage. So if I'm sitting there and there's somebody who's been like, man, I've been on and off drugs. Uh, I've been misusing alcohol. I've had a string of extramarital affairs. And I finally am in touch with why I'm doing this and I want some help. And you have their spouse sitting on the couch next to them. That's where you, as the, I mean, as a the therapist, you have to be able to balance and say, yeah, you have every right to be upset about all the, the collateral damage that's happened to, your, happened to your relationship and happened to you and that you're going through. And by the way, you even have the right to dump this person and say, I'm going to get off this train. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happens all the time. And to the client to kind of show them and help them to say, but that doesn't mean you're a bad person and doesn't mean you can't recover. And it doesn't mean that you are, I don't know. It doesn't mean you have to fall into this shame pit and say, oh, I'm this terrible person who wrecked my marriage. It's like, because we're really looking at a tragedy where to a certain extent, I mean, the the client is already the victim of their own unhealthy coping to Mm -hmm. where it just, just, I mean, I won't say, I would say just as much as their spouse. That's a little dramatic maybe, but it's like, uh, no, but they're being victimized by their own choices as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's like that re-shame. So, you know, some of this stuff comes out of a place of not wanting to feel shame. And then shame can be reignited by the actual behaviors. So to shame someone can just perpetuate, continue that loop. Yeah. In a way. Oh yeah, you see this. Uh, you see this big uh, pattern, right? Where if we were we were doing this visually, right? We get a whiteboard and we draw that circle, kind of like you know, you you have some kind of feeling, you resolve it with an unhealthy coping skill, and then you feel like guilt and shame, and you pull away, and and that leads you usually back to those feelings that led you to it in the first place, mm-hmm. and then that gets perpetuated by people's reactions, and so mm-hmm. in a way, you know, they're reaction sets you up to keep going down this path but your actions then set them up to react that way (laughs) because if i do certain things and you're my friend spouse support system whatever you're going to reject me and particularly for those people who have a really really unhealthy 
pattern of pushing people away. As uh-huh. we see this a lot of times with a borderline personality dynamic, where it's very, very approached and avoid right? self-sabotage in relationships. And it's mm-hmm. like, if I did a thing and you didn't reject me, well, I better do something else. Because the rejection, getting you to reject me before you do it on your own, is like the unhealthy coping skill for some people. Mm-hmm. And so even that rejection, they'll almost chase it. You know, not, not, this is not always conscious, you know, but it's like, right. yeah, I'll chase that rejection in a way. And if, and if I didn't get it, I'll up the ante. Mm-hmm. But there's, you're even mentioning like an addictive quality uh, within relationships. And this, this pattern that you're kind of describing that isn't so much, uh, it isn't so much conscious or even someone being able to verbalize until they come to therapy um, that this is what's happening. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad to hear you say that it's hopeful, though, when I when I was talking about it, because that's the whole that's the whole goal, right, is to be hopeful that that you can break that pattern. And mm-hmm. I, I like I like to say a lot of times that it's uh, it, it's more like digging a ditch than it is like putting together a nuclear reactor. It's not necessarily complicated. It's just very hard. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when it seems like, oh, that's really simple. It's like it is simple, hard work. But actually, you don't have to be some rocket scientist or something to say. Oh, I know what's going on. You just have to be aware of yourself, and then mm-hmm. and then work hard to say it's going to be emotional roller coaster. I'm I've got to sign up for you know being ready for it to be very uncomfortable. Um, you know that 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 sometimes is hopeful because I don't want to minimize how hard it is for people to change, but I, I also don't want them to think they're not able to. Hmm. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are about the interaction between. Um, both just moving through therapy and kind of developing coping skill, like healthy ones. Cause I know some of it is just by embracing life because life ha- is looking different now. Like what comes first? It might even turn into the chicken or the egg kind of discussion. Uh, but what just, what you experience is moving into observing kind of moving into healthy coping patterns for people. Well, I, th- I think you, you're onto something there where it's just uh, sometimes things naturally crop up that are like enjoyment of life. Um, I had someone just the other day who, who you know, without getting very specific of what, of what the situation is, they just said to me, wow, I'm not as angry as I used to be. That's really cool. Uh, and, and just there's a lot of things that you can enjoy if you're not as angry as you used to be. Um, mm-hmm. If any of my clients listen to this, then like 20 of them might think that was them, I guess. But, you know, because that's a very vague statement. but. <laughs> They'll be like, oh, was that me? Oh, sure, why not? Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think, I think there's some natural outgrowth. I also like, though, to sometimes, uh, I'm one that when we're talking about the unhealthy coping skill, I like to actually get into what is reinforcing about it. Uh, and it's funny because if you ask a person, you know, what's good about doing cocaine? They know that they're supposed to say nothing. It's terrible, you know. Uh, or, well, I like it, but it's bad. You know, but you have to kind of like say, no, it's really okay. Let's get into what value that plays in your life and what reward you get from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because chances are that you're, you might be actually chasing after something that's not unhealthy. Um, and I'll give you my, I mean, the ultimate example of that is, 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 uh, is suicide, right? So, so a suicidal ideation. It's what, it's what? Oh yeah. 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 It's suicidal ideation and, and suicidal desires. Um, that's, that's bad. We all know that's unhealthy. That's one of the least healthy things you can do to yourself. 
at least, you know, until it's done. And we don't have any data after that. We don't know what happens. So it's a, the most dramatic sort of mental health uh, crisis that you can have. But when you talk to anyone who is suicidal or who has ever been suicidal, they'll tell you in the core of what they were really looking for, there was some version of, I didn't want to hurt anyone. I wanted to be free from some kind of suffering. You know, I wanted to have some peace. And that's not bad. Like, that, that goal. And so sometimes I like to look at an unhealthy coping skill and say, what's the, if we can figure out what the core goal is, are there ways that you could meet it or at least meet a partial version of it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, is that something that isn't unhealthy? It's not unhealthy to want someone to love me. It's not unhealthy to want to either change or get out of an unhealthy relationship or reestablish connection with my child or whatever it is that I want out of that. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, uh, it's something that it takes some, some work and therapy to kind of get there. But I think, but what I find is once people wrap their mind around that as a concept, it's actually not usually very hard to figure out, oh, okay, well, what was I getting out of it then? Release. I was getting it, you know, I, even, even, uh, the, the key really is to get people to be willing to talk about something that they might be ashamed of. <laughs> You know, I've worked, I've worked with a number of clients who, who uh, had a real compulsive uh, pornography use or even some compulsive sexual habits that were, that were eating away at their relationships or it even cost them relationships. And when mm-hmm. you say, well, why don't we talk a little more specifically about what kind of porn you're looking for? They're like, whoa, uh, what? Why would I do what? What? It's like, well, you know, slow down. I'm not, not going to pull up websites, but, you know, just tell me. What is it that you get out of that, that thing? What are we looking for emotionally? And in some cases, there's a pretty clear cut. Well, I want to be loved, but not have to work for it. Okay, well, being loved is a good thing. Why, don't, why can't we work for it? What, what is scary about that? And we've got a whole thing to talk about now that could lead to something that could be actually very healthy. Mm-hmm. So something that can be very massive, um, you know, you're kind of breaking it down in a way that... I don't know. I, again, going back to the hope, it's not this like unnamed thing that seems like too much and a secret and it's underground and I'm bringing it to the surface and saying, okay, let's just, again, non-judgmentally. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the idea. And I, I always believe that that's one of the things that should be uh, possible in therapy is to be able to talk about something that I could say anywhere else and someone would say, Ugh. but if I say it here, they'll go, Hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll meet it with that curiosity instead of revulsion. <laughs> yes. Two very different sounds you just made. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should put that on my business card. Curiosity, not revulsion. And then a link to this podcast so they'll understand what the hell I'm talking about. All right. <laughs> Feel free to send me that card when you make it. Yes, that'd be good. We'll, we'll mass market it. Out to people. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you located? Can you share that yeah. with people? I sure can. I'm in an undisclosed location. Uh, no, I, I live and practice in uh, the middle part of uh, Utah, in the western part of the country, United States of America, planet Earth. <laughs> so any more specific than that. Latitude and longitude will be connected here, too. Now, you can find, a, you can find me, you know, like all of us, I'm online at Psychology Today, if you want to read about kind of my practice. Or you can go to my website, which is just my name, DwightHurst.com. 
Uh, and at that website, there is a, a slash podcast page on there. So dwighthurst.com slash podcast. Usually have my, my most current episodes up there. Or you can subscribe to The Broken Brain on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you want to do that. Uh, yeah. And you can follow me on Twitter at Breakabrain. Breakabrain. Okay. Nice. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Well, I want to thank Dwight for this conversation. Um, and to follow any episodes, you can tune into iTunes, follow the On the Boo Couch podcast. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, and thank you for turning, tuning in. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>